You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. Easy going, easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Well, didn't you make a fool? I want to take time today to personally thank our sponsors the J.I. Learning Center, and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Listeners, please do us a solid and support our sponsors. Thank you. Welcome back to Pod Save the Rest of Us. We are your hosts, Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We have been working in the off-season to bring you stories of 10 vastly different women who, through the resiliency, have beaten the odds and nevertheless persisted. We walked away from these interviews feeling inspired. We hope you do too. If you like the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and help us get these stories out into the world. Enjoy the episode. Jill Vagelin's life started in an average middle-class home in an average middle-class town, but where her story takes us is anything but average. This is the story of one individual who took a family tragedy, learned from it, and went on to make a positive impact to an underserved community. This is also a story that expresses how our parents' love is so important. Their love and sacrifices provide children with the balance they need throughout their lives, even when the parents pass away far too soon. Jill grew up in a middle-class family in a suburb of San Francisco. So I grew up in Pleasanton, California. Uh, My family moved there when I was seven. And I am the first biological child of my family. I'm one of four. I have an older sister, a younger sister, and a younger brother, and we're all two years apart. My parents had tried for uh, over four years to have children biologically, and it wasn't happening, so they adopted my older sister. And two years later, they had me. Two years later, they had my younger sister. And two years later, they had my younger brother. I would say we were close, but we were a very typical American family. You know, four kids, all active. We all had different friend groups. Um, we fought. We we got along when we had to. We grumbled about going to church. We all played different sports. So we weren't the family that was like happy and singing and, you know, dancing together by any means. I think we were just a very typical American family living in the suburbs. Um, And I was probably the most difficult of my parents' children, not in the, the sense that I gave them a hard time. I was a good student. I had good friends. I was an athlete. I didn't get into any trouble, but I was incredibly demanding. I was incredibly um, self-focused. And so I made things very difficult for my family. While I think my siblings were kind of more peacekeepers and willing to just hang out with the family and do the things that my, my parents wanted, I was always the one resisting. I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted nothing to do with my siblings or my parents. So we got along, but it was, like I said, again, just very, very typical. We weren't, we weren't special. We weren't anything out of the ordinary. We were just a very typical American family. I do want to give credit to both my mom and my dad, because I think what wasn't typical is that we had the most incredible and present mom and dad. We got the combo. They loved us so big and so well, and they just supported us and wrapped their arms around us and told us how much they loved us. And I realize how rare that is. I, I am I'm realizing how incredibly rare it was to have such present, loving parents who supported us no matter what, even in our weaknesses. They championed us and they instilled uh, confidence in, in each one of my siblings were all very different, but they instilled such confidence and an ability to laugh and play and laugh at ourselves. And that isn't typical. Um, that isn't all that average. I feel like that's really above average. And my dad 
was such a presence in our lives. He was a plumber, which was not the the career he would have chosen, but he was shot in the eye when he was a teenager. So he couldn't go into law enforcement, which was his dream. And he sacrificed. He, he took this career on to, to be a provider, to be a husband and a father. Jill's family dealt with illness and tragedy early in their history. So my mom passed away on February 15th, 1998. I was 20. Um, my brother, my youngest, who was probably the most hard impacted, and actually my older sister was as well, My brother was 16, my younger sister was 18, I was 20, and my older sister was 22. She had been diagnosed four years earlier with pancreatic cancer. And for those who don't know, unfortunately, pancreatic cancer is still pretty much a death sentence. Typically, the diagnosis or the prognosis is by the time they are aware that pancreatic cancer is there and growing in the body, you typically have four to six months to live. So my mother was, we were all four years younger, so 12, 14, 16, and 18 when she was diagnosed. Um, And they knew, my parents knew she would die from this. They knew that it would take her life. However, she was a candidate for this very rare procedure called the Whipple procedure, which is where they take various organs out of the body and not many individuals who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are eligible um, for this type of procedure because usually the cancer has progressed. So she was she was able to have the surgery and that gave her about three and a half years, which again, really not typical with pancreatic cancer. So the fact that she lived for almost four years with pancreatic cancers is very rare and really incredible. Um, but the diagnosis came when we were all quite young and my parents made the decision to keep it from us. My mom felt very strongly that she wanted her children to stay children. She did not want her illness uh, and this disease to take away our childhood. And that is something I don't know that I have struggled with, but I certainly have my opinions on. Um, I, I wish I had known. I go back and forth. I'm so grateful because I did very much stay a child. They, they did not tell us. We knew our mom was sick. I'm sort of using air quotes. Um, they would use that term that she was sick and she'd have to have surgery, but we were never told she had cancer and we were never told that it would take her life. And amazingly enough, because we grew up in this very tight-knit community, Pleasanton itself is very tight-knit, but our our religion being in this Mormon faith, the community is quite beautiful. And while I'm no longer Mormon, nor do I subscribe to to any organized religion. I am very appreciative for what what it offered, especially to my family and to my to my mom during this time. So, I say this because everyone around us knew. My friends knew. Um, the entire community, our religious community, knew. And yet, somehow, I, I really am sort of astonished at. I think our brain's ability to protect us when we when we don't want to know something that we never found out. None of my siblings, the four of us, had no idea for the full almost four years. It's really quite shocking, actually, when I look back that I could stay that naive and that closed off to what was happening. Um, but I just never knew. And it was never talked about, apart from her being sick. And she never showed it. She lost a substantial amount of weight, which in itself should have been something that would have had me scratching my head and wondered why she had lost so much weight and how she had lost so much weight. But because she was so strong and so determined to not let her illness um, be an identity for her or even really impact her life in a real way that externally, I should say, um, it just, we never knew. We never knew. So yeah, it, it, it is looking back. I am, I'm, I struggle with how I didn't know and how I didn't see it and why I didn't ask more questions and why my siblings, we didn't talk amongst ourselves about this. But again, we really were just this very typical family. We weren't overly close. We weren't overly communicative. We went on camping trips and we went to church and we played our sports, but we weren't having powwows. And, you know, I think it was also just generate generationally a different time. We were sort of on the cusp of 
the last family dynamic where things were still not talked about all that much. It wasn't until Jill's junior year of college that she started to suspect something was seriously wrong with her mom. It was my junior year in college and I was living in Utah and I'd come home for Thanksgiving and my younger sister had come home as well. My older sister had moved out of the house at this point and my younger brother was still in high school, although he had started to really um, get into trouble at this point. He had started to dabble with drugs and he'd been arrested a couple times, but he was a teenager. So it was just sort of brushed off. It wasn't anything we were taking too seriously. Um, but I was home and I just remember my mom pulled me into our, our living room, which was the room that was like off limits. It was where we had the beautiful couch and the beautiful furniture and we never touched on it and we never sat on it. And it was just for show. And she brought me in there and was sort of incoherent. She was trying to tell me how much she loved me and how important I was to her and how proud of me she was. And she probably weighed 105 point, five, excuse me, she probably weighed 105 pounds at this point, which my mom was 5'10 and a big woman. I'm, I'm big. I'm 5'9 and I'm strong and athletic. And she was, she was not a small woman. So for her to weigh close to 100 pounds is pretty startling, but I had over the last year or two, just become used to her being this size. And so I should have noticed, but again, I just had these blinders on and it was my mom and she was so strong, even though she was this now this very frail woman in front of me, telling me how much she loved me and how proud she was of me. And I'm sort of looking at her like, I love you too. I know. Thanks mom. Like, yeah, thank you. You're the, you're the best. I love you so much. This is kind of weird. Why are you being so serious? And she hugged me and that was it. And I sort of scratched my head and thought that was weird. But I just had blinders on and was so focused on me that I, I didn't see it. Things finally got to an inflection point. Once Joe got back to Idaho in college, she couldn't shake a nagging feeling that her mom was not herself. I got back to Utah that day. I couldn't shake it. And I got on the phone with my dad. I called him and I said something's up. I don't know what it is. I feel like something's really wrong and no one's telling me mom seemed really weird. She, I'm realizing how thin she is. Like what is going on? What, what is going on now? Mind you, this has been three and a half years of her having battling pancreatic cancer and everyone around me knowing. And I just like, it's like the light bulb just sort of went off and he just started crying. And I said, Dad, what is going on? I feel like I need to be home. I, I need you to tell me. And he still could not tell me that she was dying. He could not do it. He said, if you feel you need to come home, that is a decision that you should make for yourself. And I said, well, I need to know the truth because I do feel like I need to be home. I feel like something is going on and you're not telling me. And I feel like I need to come home. And he said, if you feel that way, then I support it and you should come home. But he did not tell me she was dying. He did not use the words pancreatic cancer. So I made the decision and within a week, um, packed up all my stuff and drove home. And um, about a week later, I'm watching Dateline. And I'm watching Dateline and it's it's this whole um, episode on pancreatic cancer. And I... I must have heard in conversation somehow pancreatic something because I, I perked up when I when I was watching this and I thought that seems this seems familiar why does this seem familiar and I started to get all of this information about pancreatic cancer and they're showing images of the of the people and they're talking about the the prognosis and how it really is a death sentence now this is also in 1998 or just the tail end of 1997 so this isn't the internet era we had encyclopedias i couldn't really hop online i think my family had just had like an AOL account for a year or two it wasn't the era where you go on webmd and you google everything which is also what really i think kept us kind of in the dark because we just that you could you could stay in this little narrow tunnel vision at that time because the world wasn't at our fingertips like it is now. Um, so after watching that, I went and talked to my dad and I, I said, I've heard something about pancreatic. I don't know why I've heard it, where I heard it, but I feel like I just watched this, this Dateline episode on pancreatic cancer. And is that what mom has? And is that what's going on? 
And he finally told me. My siblings did not know. So I then broke the news to my siblings because my dad just, it was very challenging for him. He was struggling. And at this point, she was officially dying. Jill had been home for two and a half months, and the gravity of the situation was becoming very obvious, as hospice was now in the house caring for her mom. The way it goes is I spent about two months there, but I was in a new relationship with someone that I'd gone to high school with, and um, we were sort of falling in love, and he was this huge support to me, and I'd I'd spent every weekend, because it was still during my college years, so I'd spend every weekend with him as as an escape, because the weeks were really hard. My mom was now in hospice. And it was Valentine, um, Valentine's Day, and I was sort of newly in love and in this new relationship and didn't quite believe that my mom was going to die so soon, even though hospice was there. And I really wanted to spend Valentine's Day with my boyfriend. I like desperately needed it. Uh, It was so dark and hard and difficult at home. And I remember leaving and my dad and my aunt were there and my aunt, they both kind of said, are you sure you want to go? And, and I did, I, I did want to go. And I went to um, San Luis Obispo, Cal Poly. I drove there for the three hours. I had a wonderful Valentine's day. It was the most lovely Valentine's day and got up in the morning and drove home and the sun was shining. And I remember I was playing the Tom Petty greatest hits album the whole way home. And it was just such a beautiful drive. It was like that crisp winter air with blue skies and white puffy clouds. And I, I felt so good. And I got home and I walked in the door and it was just the, my mom wasn't on the couch, which is where she had been. And the looks on my aunt and actually my uncle and my dad's face, they, they didn't say anything. And I just collapsed. I just collapsed to the floor. I knew that she had died and I knew that I had chose to leave that night. I wasn't there. I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't get to tell her I love her. I didn't get to hold her hand. I left. And I've thought a lot about that. Um, and I have friends who since have lost their parents and really struggle with the endings and struggle with the way they've lost their parents or haven't struggled or been able to have those conversations that I I didn't get to have. And I almost, I think those last couple months sort of preferred to keep my blinders on. They were safe for me. I didn't have to admit what what was happening. Um, But I, because I don't believe in holding on to regret, I feel like it's just a really bad energy and it doesn't serve me. I know that if my mom could have chosen for me where I would have spent her last night, she would have wanted me to be where I was 100%. She would have wanted me to feel loved and comfortable and safe and protected and wanted and held versus devastated and and broken and shattered because I certainly got that once she once she passed so I that is something I've had to really come to terms with that I wasn't there and I'm genuinely okay with it I I've it's been a long time it's been 20 years and I'm genuinely comfortable with the fact that I I was where I was when my mom passed away Jill's family was devastated by the loss of their matriarch and really struggled to adjust and come to terms with her death. When my mom passed away, she really, as as I think most mothers are in every home and or family unit, they really are the heart of the family, typically, if you're lucky. (laughs) Um, And she was. And so when she passed away, it was such a dark time for my family. Um, My brother, as I mentioned briefly, he just continued on this path of drug abuse and um, criminal behavior and being arrested. So I'm now at home living with my dad and my brother and my two sisters are out of the house. And it was just, our home went from this really beautiful, warm, safe place to a very dark, um, sad place. And the heart was gone and my dad was shattered. He just, my my mom was his everything. They had been together for 27 years and he did not know how to function without her. And he also really struggled with being able to recognize that yes, he lost his wife and partner, but he had four young enough children. His son was 16 um, who lost their mother. And he just, my dad just sort of spiraled into his own 
um, depression and grief and handled it his way, which, which was hard to watch because he, he did not want to feel it. He, he did not want to be alone. He did not want to be without my mother. And he really struggled with accepting his own grief and loss and my brother, the same, they, they handled it in very different ways, but witnessing both of these, these men in my family just crumble and not be able to uh, pick themselves up. That was, that was very difficult. And I took a lot of comfort in my relationship at the time. Uh, I was able to sort of escape on the weekends and be with him. He knew my mom. He knew my family. He was such a support to me at the time. I'm, I'm so grateful for that relationship because that really was, I found a lot of strength there. I'm, I'm realizing how unfair it was to have put all of that on that relationship, but it was a solace for me. In the aftermath of Jill's mom's death, Jill did her best to step into the huge hole in her family that was left in her absence. At that age, when my mom passed away, everything changed, everything. I, I suddenly had to become my, my mom. I had to become the heart of our family. And I think I resented it a bit, but I also was up for the challenge. And in doing so, in, in stepping into her shoes as best I could, um, she had led by example my whole life. She never really offered advice, but she just was such a leader. Every I, I watched her. I paid attention to the way she spoke to people. I paid attention to the way she loved her children. I paid attention to the way she loved my dad. I paid attention to the way she was in, in her church and in the community, the way she spoke with grocery store clerks. And I just watched her and I, I admired her and I wanted to be like her. She was um, an, an exemplary human being in every way and just treated people with such kindness and with such love and compassion. So that was the choice I had to make. As sad as I was and as grief stricken as I was, someone, my family needed that. So I did my best to sort of consciously step into that role. Um, but it was very challenging. And I was still this sort of selfish child. <laughs> so it was very, I was very conflicted because I didn't know how to be this person I wanted to be. And I felt I needed to be. Um, and, and that was a juggle. And at the same time, I was also realizing that my religion did not align with who I was. I really no longer felt a connection to the Mormon faith. I felt um, some of the principles and values were beautiful and I was really grateful for them um, and for the way that I was taught at a young age, but they no longer aligned with who I was as, um, as an adult and who I was becoming. So I was also sort of separating from my religion, which unless you've been really devout in, in a sort of strict religion is hard to explain, but it's like you're separating from yourself so it was, there was just a lot going on for me at that, at that time. And it wouldn't be for years later when I finally truly separated from the Mormon religion and the identity I had there that I was able to look back at my mom's passing and sort of really accept how it all went down and the decisions my parents made and the decisions I made and to reconcile it all and, and just accept it and trust and know that my mom knew how much I loved her and how grateful I was for her and still am. And she still knows. And I just, it's just a knowing that I have. And that knowing is what's allowed me to accept the story exactly as it, as it is. Jill stayed home until she was 24, but ultimately made the difficult decision to move to Los Angeles. That was not an easy decision to make. I felt like I was abandoning them, but I also knew if I didn't leave, I might never. And I, I had to, I had to do it for myself. Jill's dad and especially her brother were still struggling. Her brother had turned to drugs to deal with the pain. Um, meanwhile, my brother, through his, his drug addiction at this point, um, he had started when he was probably 13 with marijuana, you know, the very typical story. Um, unfortunately, it escalated quite quickly into meth and um, we didn't know this. My family, again, was Mormon, so we were quite naive. There was no alcohol in my house growing up, certainly no drugs. We didn't swear. There wasn't a lot of fighting. My family, my our household was just 
very light and loving and apart from the average normal typical arguments between husband and wife and the kids there was there was no darkness in my in my home and when my brother started doing drugs especially after my mom passed it got real heavy there was just so much darkness he would be locked in his room for 3 days at a time you couldn't wake him up cuz he would be on benders and then he would just be passed out for days at a time he started graffitiing all over his walls again he was 16 and he was very shy my brother was a, a mama's boy as they say he loved my mom he was a complete introvert He was very tall. He's he's 6-4 now, but he was very tall and sort of awkward despite his athleticism. He didn't have many friends and was very much loved my mother and I just think he got lost in the shuffle. He was 12 when she was diagnosed and something I didn't mention is that again, our mom was sick, but we we didn't totally understand the extent of it. My she'd been in and out of the hospital and my dad would spend time with her at the hospital. and from 12 to 16 for my brother who is this shy introvert who doesn't have a lot of friends it, those are those are informative years and he didn't have the mom and dad that my sisters and I had during those informative years they just they couldn't be there their focus had to be elsewhere so he really suffered and it took a toll and um he'd been in and out of juvenile hall and then in and out of the local jail there in Pleasanton, the Santa Rita County Jail. While Joe was in Los Angeles, she received the phone call she had been dreading. I'm now in LA. I'm 24, maybe 25 years old and and I got the phone call. Uh, it had been years now that my brother had been being arrested, probably 6-7 years, so this this wasn't new. During the time that I was living home from 20 to 24, I would call the police on my brother because I would go out to go to work and my car would be gone. He would have taken it. My brother would steal my car. Um and the police, the funny thing is because my brother is he's a vegan. He was raised by my parents. He is he is confident. He is good with people. He's got a sense of humor. The police loved my brother. They loved him and they also realized he wasn't a bad kid. but they you know they they understood where he was at so when i would call the police enraged because my car had been stolen they would come over and they'd talk to me be like look we know your brother hopefully the car comes back we'll look for it but they would never do anything and it drove me crazy <laughs> because they just they loved him and i loved him but he was such a little oh he drove me crazy so that happened many times or there'd be times i'd come home from my lunch break and there'd be three squad cars sitting in front of our house and my brother handcuffed on the on the sidewalk that was typical we were we'd gone from this all american family on the this you know lovely little street in pleasanton in the in the suburbs to that family where any given day the cops are showing up at our house and my brother's being arrested and it was it was hard i mean that was that was a that was a trans- transition I didn't know how to make and I I was angry about it and I was disappointed in him and I didn't have the perspective that I later gained um at the time I just didn't understand why he couldn't get it together and why he kept screwing up um so that happened many times so by the time I'm in LA and I'm 24 25 and I get the phone call it had just been this has just been years of of this so my dad calls me and says Your brother's been arrested. It's really bad. Um he was arrested with your cousin in Fremont. Uh I don't know all the details, but I know that a gun was involved. I know that the gun was discharged and that helicopters were out searching for them and it's bad. And I I just I was just wrecked. I had as I mentioned really taken on the role of my mother in my family and I felt like a mother to my my brother. We're only 4 years apart, but I have I have for as long as I can remember felt a much more maternal connection to him than I have a a sisterly one and my two sisters will attest to that. They feel like his sister, I feel like his mom. And when I learned that news, it it felt as close as I could imagine. I don't have any children of my own, but it felt like a a child. I mean, I just ached. I was just wrecked. I was devastated and so sad and I didn't know the details and later learned 
the details of his arrest and it was for $300. He owed a debt of $300 to the wrong people for, for some meth. And my cousin who my brother is, is white Caucasian and my cousin is black African-American and they're big. My, my brother's six, four, big white guy. My cousin is a big black guy. He's probably six, four, six, five. And at the time he looked like a, you know, a defensive lineman for the Raiders. He was just a big, big dude, but the most gentle man. And he was, my brother was 20, 21 at the time. And my cousin was 22, 23. And they were, they were still just babies. These were just little boys pretending to be a lot bigger and stronger than they were. Um, they had gone into a convenience store. They had actually gone around to several because my brother owed this money. My cousin did not. They'd been drinking all day. I'm sure they'd been on some sort of a meth bender and they got a gun which is terrifying, but they did. They got their hands on a gun and went to several convenience stores and every single one, my brother decided, nope, this isn't the one, this isn't the one, this isn't the one. Ultimately decided he was just going to go hide out for a few days to sort of hope that this blows over. Although my understanding is the people that he owed money to, they, this wasn't going to blow over. This was This could have taken his life, quite frankly. So my cousin as they're getting ready to drive my brother to wherever he's going to hide out, sees a convenience store and says, that's the one I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do it. So he goes in with the gun. He's blacked out from being drunk from drinking gin. And he's arguing with the, the clerk and the clerk won't give him the money. And my cousin starts banging the gun on the cash register to get it to open. And at that time, the gun discharges, this is a, so absurd. It discharges and ricochets and hits the, the man in the leg. So he's shot. It was not a, you know, it wasn't a hold the gun at him and shoot him, but he, the gun discharges, the man is hit in the leg my cousin flees. They are now driving through the streets of, of Fremont, California. Um, the police are chasing them. Helicopters are out. Schools are shut down. And it's the sort of story that if you see it on the news and you're watching it, you're thinking, if you don't have the perspective I have, you're thinking these monsters, these animals, like, oh my gosh, they're threatening our children. Look, they're shooting people. And you're terrified of these people. But this is my family and I know them and I know their backstory and I know their souls and their hearts and they're not monsters and they're not terrifying and they're none of those things but i understood both sides of it and and the the ultimate end of this story is neither one of us were neither one of our families were going to pay for attorneys my brother had been like i said in and out of jail we'd hired attorneys before this was something had to give and luckily he hadn't been killed and luckily my cousin hadn't been killed but we could no longer continue to support and help him in this way and enable him. So we had a court appointed attorney and as did my cousin, they are both, the way it works is your co-defendants in a case. So they were, they were charged with the exact same charges while it was my cousin who went in and had the gun. My brother was the driver. They were, they were complicit. They were in this together. They were charged the exact same charges, which were attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, mayhem, um, and there may be various other charges, but those were the most serious and those are felonies and those are strikes. So they had terrible attorneys. I was dealing with my brother's attorney, court appointed attorney at the time I was working in LA. I was working in the music industry and dealing with this attorney and he was, he was horrible. I mean, he just, I, he, he didn't know anything about my brother's case. Every time we spoke, he had nothing new to offer. I understand attorneys are busy and he had a heavy caseload and he was court appointed, which means he was taking this case on for free, which usually they're not interested in doing. And I knew that, um, but he he really was just an inarticulate man. And that, that was concerning for me. Um, I didn't know anything about my cousin's attorney, but from what I heard, they were about the same, the two attorneys. And as things played out in court, it was really quite quick. There was no trial. Um, they both took plea deals because the way it works, first of all, they were guilty. Um, and typically, if you go to trial, you are risking a lot. Trial is like, okay, we're going to give you 10 years. But if you go to trial, you could be looking at two lifetime sentences. So typically, people will avoid trial because they don't want to risk that, that type of sentence. So my cousin was offered 
a 23-year sentence and my brother got a four-year sentence. And they, my brother went to San Quentin and my cousin went to Pelican Bay. And that in itself, having my brother, who is um, 20, 21 years old, get a four-year sentence to San Quentin prison, um, it felt like like death. It felt like he had been, it felt like he had died. And I, I knew that feeling intimately from having lost my mother not too long before. And it was just devastating, absolutely devastating for, for both of them. And I think to see that my white brother and my black cousin, um, neither of whom had money, uh, my family did, had enough, but my cousin did not. They're uh, lower income, don't live in a good area, and certainly did not have money to see the disparity in their sentences that this, this black man got a 23 year sentence and this white man got a four year sentence, um, was shocking. And that really changed things for me, um, in, in every way, my whole life sort of changed, um, with, with that. The reality of the situation with her brother and cousin made it impossible for Jill to pretend that there was universal justice in our criminal judicial system. She decided she wanted to get into the field and try to make a difference. I, it was like, it was like finally and officially like the blinders that I had been living with my whole life in every way growing up in Pleasanton, California to a white family in a white neighborhood where we had maybe two black kids at our school and maybe one Indian family at our school. Everyone looked the same as me. Everyone's lives were the same. We all drove the same cars. We lived in the same homes. I felt like the blinders just came off and I could suddenly, I saw the world for what it really is. And I saw the injustice and I had always been interested in criminal law. I think so many people are. It's why there are all these television shows and then all these these reality type shows based on it. Um, I, but I really was genuinely interested in it. At the time I was working in the music industry and it felt soul-sucking. I remember feeling like this job is horrible. I don't feel fulfilled doing this job, but it's a job and I have to pay my bills. Um, but when that happened, I I knew I had to do something and I had to get involved. And I didn't yet know what that looked like. I thought maybe I needed to go to law school. Um, maybe I needed to become a criminal defense attorney. Uh, but what I decided was before diving into the deep end, I would get a job at a law firm, at a criminal defense law firm. So I started reaching out to local criminal defense law firms and saying, hey, I'm interested in starting at the bottom. I'll do whatever you want, legal assistant, secretary, I don't care. Um, but I'd like to get a job uh, in this industry. Help me do that. So I found, I went into an interview with a man who later became my mentor and truly family and still his family to this day. I went into the interview and we're talking and I'm answering all of his questions. And he's like, well, why criminal defense? You know, I, I tell me why it seems like you're specifically seeking out criminal defense only. There are so many types of law. What is it about criminal defense? And I shared with him the story of my brother. And to this day, he loves to, to bring it up. He's like, who tells people in an interview that their brother is, you know, a drug addict and has been arrested and is in prison and all of these things. He's like, that is not something you bring up in an interview, which I disagree. I feel like I was at a criminal defense law firm. What better place to mention that exact story? So we still disagree on that one. I think I was right. I think so was wrong, but he, he hired me on the spot. So it obviously did not deter him that much. He told me, do not go into law. I don't know many happy attorneys. Uh, he's he loved law, loves it. He is the most passionate attorney that I've ever come into contact with. He's the most amazing attorney that I've ever come into contact with. But he said I would not recommend it. It it is not the kind of life that it's that that most people think it is. Your life is not your own. You work ungodly hours. So I was able to learn a lot about the criminal justice system and sort of become aware of what it was that really sp spoke to me in in this whole process and to me it was about giving a voice to the voiceless it was about really like circling back and looking at my mom and the example that she was of of she championed the underdog 
she was the woman who would seek out the shy kid in the room and go play with them and dance with them and get them to come out of their shell. And so I, again, without her ever saying it to me, she just, she taught me that it matters to give a voice to the voiceless. And I had a voice, I had confidence, I had love, I had support, I had all of these tools that I was starting to realize so many people don't have. Ultimately, Jill decided she didn't want to become a lawyer, but did want to make a difference by helping those in the criminal justice system that didn't have the resources they needed. Jill took her newfound passion and started looking for ways to volunteer and contribute. And a few years later, I was living in Malibu at the time and driving through a canyon where I saw a Los Angeles County probation sign and it said Camp David Gonzalez. And I thought, what is that? Like I knew, I imagined it had to be some sort of detention center, but I didn't know what. And I called them and I called them several times. I didn't know who I was calling or why I was calling, but again, I just sort of wanted to volunteer and and show up and see if, if I could hang out there or I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, no response naturally. Cause I'm just calling random numbers at this facility. They don't know who I am. A couple weeks later, I'm at a dinner with a girlfriend who, um, her name is Carol and she is the cousin of one of our good friends. She's Amy's cousin. And, uh, she is a juvenile justice advocate. She'd worked in DC. Um, she's a juvenile public defender, just this brilliant, amazing woman who's a total powerhouse. And, uh, so inspirational and motivational for me. So we're having dinner and she tells me that she'd just been at this facility in Malibu called Camp David Gonzalez. And I'm like, what? T- t- wait, what? Tell me more. I've been trying to get in touch with this place. That's amazing. What do you know? And she's like, it's a, it's a juvenile detention center for teenagers from Los Angeles County. And she was there with a mutual friend who's got a program there. And so I begged her to get me in contact with this friend. She got me in contact with this friend and within a matter of weeks, I was at his program where I went and I spoke to the kids about criminal defense and the criminal justice system, which was really cool. So that was my introduction to Camp David Gonzalez and, um, and kind of the really beginning of, of, of the organization that I've since founded. Camp David Gonzalez is a juvenile detention center in Los Angeles. So Camp David Gonzalez, it houses, it was built to house about 150 youth. While I was there, it would house anywhere from, I'd say, 30 to 40 young men only. So ages 14 to 18. And they were there for all sorts of crimes. I mean, I I used to like to think that they were there for just sort of minor infractions. But the truth is, I had kids there for attempted murder. And many of them were gang related. um, And they were from all over. LA County, a lot of them from South Central. Uh, something that I, I, you couldn't help but notice, but in the, I was at Camp Gonzalez for almost three years. And during my time there, I had maybe three white kids in my program. The rest were black and brown. And it just, it, it just, it continued to sort of reaffirm the injustice in our society and the struggles and um, the struggles of, of minorities and people uh, who come from a lower socioeconomic background. If you don't have money, you are going to be a part of the system and you're going to stay a part of the system. And that was maddening for me. It, it doesn't keep me up at night, but it's definitely something that I see on a firsthand basis. And I think unless you really see it and you go and you're a part of these communities and you drive through these communities or you walk through these communities or you talk to these kids, you really just can't understand um, how, how unjust that this system is. You hear about it, you read about it, but seeing it is, is entirely different. At Camp Gonzalez, Jill got involved with Dan Seaver, who led a program there for 10 years. It started as a journalism course, and he turned it into a mentoring program. So Camp Gonzalez, I went there for the first time. I spoke about the criminal justice system, the, this man, Dan Seaver, who has become a mentor as well. Um, I just love him. He ran the program there. He had been there for 10 years, I believe. It was a mentoring program where he would bring in individuals from all walks of life who had found 
success in their particular career. It could be as a carpenter or a mechanic or a tattoo artist or, um, you know, a sound guy in, in television. It didn't matter what the career was, but it was that you had found success and typically that they had taken an unconventional path. So he would bring people in, they would speak to the kids, there'd be like a question and answer time. And he'd bring in some really, really cool people. And after my first time at the class, I just said to him, I want to be involved. Can I, how can I be involved? How can I help? What can I do? And he said, come back next weekend. So I came back the next weekend and I just sat there and I would listen to the speaker and I'd ask some questions along with the kids. And, and he said, come back next weekend. So I came back the following weekend and he's like, look, I could use the help. I could use the assistance. Like sometimes I'm not going to be here. It would be nice to have someone fill in. So if you're willing to keep coming back, I'd love to have you. And I did. I just kept coming back. It was Saturday mornings. It was an hour and a half. And it was like the highlight of my week. I'd get to connect with the kids a little, talk to them a bit. I'd get to meet interesting people. After six months of volunteering, Dan broke the news to Jill that he had to leave Camp Gonzalez in order to give his full attention to a new nonprofit he had founded called Manifest Works. Although Jill hadn't realized it, Dan had been grooming her to take over the program. I didn't have the tools. So I took over Dan's program and it felt that way. It felt like I had taken over Dan's program. It was called the SCORE class. I would bring in speakers. And on one hand, it was really cool because it gave me um, the freedom to just reach out to anyone on the internet or anyone who I thought was doing really cool stuff. I could reach out to them and email them and say, hey, you're doing amazing things. I run this program at this juvenile detention center. I'm always looking for cool speakers. Are you down? Would you come talk to these kids? And amazingly enough, people almost always are like, yeah, heck yeah, I totally would. That sounds awesome. Sign me up. When can I do it? So I've been able to connect with some super cool people and basically stalk people on the internet that I otherwise would not have been able to, or they certainly wouldn't have responded to me. And that was really cool until I brought in uh, Leon Azubuki, who runs a boxing studio in Santa Monica and Los Angeles called Gloveworks. And I'd been going to Gloveworks to just to work out. Uh, and I Leon was fascinating to me. He's this, he's this young black guy, big, I mean, so fit, so strong, the most magnetic smile and personality ever, a fierce coach, but like so sweet when you're talking to him one-on-one -on -one and kind of just a little witty, he'll make little jabs, but just, just this overall incredible human being. And I thought, I got to get Leon in to talk to these kids. They will love him. He runs this gym. You know, he'd just be great. So I asked Leon to come to Camp Gonzalez, and I thought I should have him work out with them. Like, they would they would love that. That'd be great. So I get Leon into the program. He comes. They love him. And then we do a quick little 20-minute workout. And that really was like the light bulb moment for me. They responded so well, one, to Leon, because he is just that personality, and two, to the exercise. With such a positive response to Leon came big ideas for the start of Jill's new program. So once I saw the way they responded to the exercise and the aftermath, they kept asking me, when is Leon coming back? When do we get a box again? When do we get a workout again? That I thought, that's what these kids need. They need exercise. They get talked at all the time. They get told what to do. They're constantly having to just sit and listen to someone bark orders at them or be stagnant you know they're they're just sitting there they've got all this free time we got to work these kids out they've got so much anger in them they've got so much frustration and they're young boys so they've got you know they've got some testosterone flowing in them they got to get this stuff out so I started seeking out fitness professionals and asking them to come do a workout with the kids and they would come and it would be the greatest thing ever. The kids would then that person, they'd focus on whoever that coach was and when are they coming back and when do we do that again? So I just slowly, I would go back and forth between having speakers and fitness professionals. And I, I slowly started to, to see it all come together. After volunteering at Camp David Gonzalez for three years, the facility shut down. Joe's invited to go to another facility called Dorothy F. Kirby Center. This new facility is where Jill's new program really started to take off. 
where the population is slightly different. On one hand, I get to now work with boys and girls, which was really exciting because I'd never worked with incarcerated girls. Uh, however, the the entire facility, all of the kids there are medicated for various various issues from ADHD, anxiety, depression, um, to more serious like schizophrenia or, or things of, of that nature. But it was at this facility, the Dorothy F. Kirby Center, where my strong program like was birthed. And strong stands for stopping teenage recidivism through opportunity and growth. And recidivism is a big word that that many people know, but not everyone knows. But it's just it's the repetitive criminal behavior. So if you are in jail you get released, you repeat the behavior, you get rearrested and go back to jail. That's recidivism. So the goal obviously is to stop recidivism. And it's a question that I ask all of my kids at the beginning of every class. I ask them to raise their hand. How many of you know about recidivism? A lot of them have never heard the word before. And I'll tell them to keep their hands up if they've been in jail more than once, keep their hands up if they've been in jail more than twice. You'll get kids who've been in jail six, seven, eight, nine times. You'll get kids who don't even remember. They're 15 years old and they have no idea how many times they've been in jail. So the strong program, really, our goal is to bring in fitness pros. We come in, we talk about a topic like getting out of your comfort zone, what the benefits of getting out of your comfort zone are. And then we go and we work out and we crush it and we sweat and we work together. And we're a team in that for those 45 minutes or whatever it is, We are a team. It is I can or I will. You can only encourage your team members. There's absolutely no negative talk, no negative vibes. If you don't want to play and you don't want to be there, cool. Peace out. You can go sit on on the wall with the probation staff. Um, But it's really the goal is to teach these kids the benefits of of exercise. It's to teach them that they're, they're behavior matters. You know, you can do, you can make good choices and you can elicit behaviors that matter, that give you positive feelings and positive reinforcement and make you feel good about yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to teach them that and I'm trying to introduce them to different types of exercise because a lot of them don't know anything. They don't, they, a lot of them are actually, like the kids at Dorothy are overweight, some of them. And I don't know if that's because of their medication. So a lot of them have never exercised. So we're introducing exercise to them for the first time. Um, other kids are super strong athletes and it's fun because then we can really push them and challenge them. Um, but that is the goal of the strong program. I do it three Saturdays out of the month and, um, I bring top fitness professionals. I have like soul cycle instructors. I've got, like I said, Leon from Gloveworks who Leon is now training Jennifer Aniston, which is exciting, but also devastating because I don't get to have him as much. I have to have other coaches from his gym. He's just blown up, which is awesome for him. Um, and I found various other, other coaches and trainers who just sort of raise their hand and I can't shake them. They're like, I want to be there. When can I come back? How soon can I be there again? This is life changing. It's really, really, really powerful stuff. And I love I love getting to share it with like-minded individuals who share my love of, of fitness and exercise and also to get to see how they connect with these kids and, and the passion and excitement that they feel um, coming into these facilities and bringing in energy and positivity. It's really, really cool. While Jill's program was going really well at Dorothy Kirby, the nonprofit that Jill was partnered with lost its probation funding and so Strong was put on hold. While this was happening, Jill was invited to bring her strong program to a new facility called Camp Kilpatrick. While it was a difficult decision to leave Dorothy Kirby, there's less red tape at Camp Kilpatrick, and there's an opportunity, if things go well, to get the SCORE program to more prisons in the United States. It's meant to be a model for for the country. Their their hope is that if this model in, in Malibu does really well, it will then be replicated throughout the country. And at Camp Kilpatrick, they're all going to be in their regular clothes. So the kids are in street clothes, the staff are in street clothes. It's meant to feel much more like a school or um, a rehabilitative center versus a jail or a prison. 
And all of the, the whole facility is, like I said, state of the art. It's beautiful. It looks like a really nice school. And the goal there is to provide all sorts of programming from arts and education to my program, which is physical fitness based, and really give these kids the tools they need. So when they, when they get out, they actually stand a chance at, at moving forward and not falling victim to, to the system. So that starts in a few weeks. And I'm really excited to be a part of that, that facility. I asked Jill about her family and about how her brother is doing now. Yeah. So my brother and I have a really, like I said, we have a really great relationship. I think something I didn't touch on and would like to is that when my mom passed away, it was a really dark time for my family, really hard. We struggled. It was, it was ugly. It was not a pretty time. And it took us a few years to really come through that, but it ended up being the most amazing thing for my family and that we turned it into a positive. We turned it into this opportunity where we don't take one another for granted. We now lost, you know, one of the most important pieces of our family and we know that loss and we know it intimately. So we no longer want to take one another for granted and we just love each other and appreciate each other. And when we're together, we have fun. We laugh and we play and we dance and we we just we just enjoy every second that we have together and that would not and could not have happened if my mom hadn't passed away i just i really don't think so and it's such a a shame i mean i may never we'll never know maybe somehow through it all we would have grown up and and we would have been able to have the connections that we have now but i i just choose to have this perspective that through this really horrible painful and the most difficult loss in my life, I gained these really beautiful relationships with my siblings and my dad. And I have such an appreciation for who they are and the role they play in my life. And my brother and I, um, through his time in prison, it was, I I mean, I don't know for people who haven't been to a prison and especially haven't had to visit a loved one in prison. It is gut wrenching. I, I don't know how people do it for years and decades where they, that's their family members are just in prison for life. I I don't know how people do it because it was so seemingly impossible to do it for almost four years with my brother. Every time I'd visit him, it just wrecked me. I'd be wrecked leading up to it. I'd be wrecked when I was there and I'd be wrecked when I left. It it really, it was as, as close to death having him there. You couldn't touch. He's in these, you know, these clothes that just make him look like this horrible criminal. And he's in this horribly dark, scary place. And it was, that was really difficult, but our relationship, we would write letters to one another while he was in prison. We would speak. I had roommates and he'd call collect and my roommates would take his calls and, um, he got sober. So it was, he hadn't been sober in a very long time. So he got sober at his time there. He got really smart. He read a ton. I mean, he just read and read. So his vocabulary is like off the charts and he made the the most of it because of his personality and, and his stature, because he's really big and strong and also quite likable um, and adaptable he did really well. You know, he had an experience that was certainly challenging. And I know that he's, there's probably things he may never tell me about his time in there, but overall, um, he managed and fared quite well during his time. And when he got out, um, it's funny when he was released, my whole family went, my two siblings, my two sisters and I, and my dad, we all went to pick him up on the day of his release. And we had Johnny Cash's, um, song about San Quentin, queued up and ready to play. He said, if you haven't heard the song, Johnny Cash does a song on San Quentin about how he hopes it burns. And he's performed, he performed it at San Quentin, which is really incredible. So we had that song on and he gets in the car and it was just the most amazing reunion. It was the most, most, most epic reunion. And it was so incredible. And we were so happy to have him back. And he's such a, he's such a light. He's, there's something about my brother that anyone who meets him, you would never no, and this is actually something that is quite common for people who've been in prison overall. There is 
there's such a light about them when they are out and an appreciation to be out that you would just never know that they've been through what they've been through. And to me, that kind of resilience and that kind of strength is just so admirable and, and attractive. It's, it's just, it's, it's really incredible to be around. And my brother has that where you're like, how have you been through all of you've been through and you still have that amazing bright smile and that incredible infectious laugh. So we missed him while he was gone. And finally, after that, you know, he went back for that parole violation. He's finally back out and we're just like shaking him. You cannot go back. This has to be it. He, a couple years later, um, after my dad pushing, he signed up for the uh, plumbers union, which is not as easy to get into as you might think in Northern California. It's the highest paid union. It's hard to get into. You have to have all this mechanical aptitude. My older sister had actually tried to get into it and couldn't. She couldn't pass the tests, but Matt did. And he's now, I think, almost into his fourth year of a five-year apprenticeship. He's sober. He exercises religiously. Um, he is no by no means perfect, but he really loves what I do and the work that I do. And we talk about it a lot. I think once he's more into his plumbing career, I'll have him come work out with the kids. He's still not quite ready. He's still not totally comfortable telling his story. He's kind of private. And for me, I would need him to share his story. I would need him to be able to comfortably tell his story. So he loves what I do. He asks me about it. He gives me beautiful praise for what I do. And and he knows that I credit him and my cousin for for their suffering and their challenges, but I, but I've tried to take this positive spin and help others because of what they went through. And he's he he loves it. He's an amazing support, and he champions me, and he makes me feel he makes me feel like I'm I'm helping, and and I appreciate hearing that from him. I thought it'd be nice to end with a reflection Jill posted on Facebook a couple years back in honor of her mom. Something I do to honor my mom, usually it's on her, her pat, the anniversary of her passing, is I will write a reflection of just who she was, what I miss, what I've learned, things of that nature. And um, this was written in 2014 and it was the it had been 14 years since her passing so I'll just go ahead and read it Fourteen years ago today my family lost its heart if someone had told me 14 years ago I'd miss her more today than ever I wouldn't have believed it missing my mom more now than I did then was implausible but I do I miss her more today I am eternally thankful for the gift of having Sharon Viglin for a mom. She was an exemplary human being, supreme in every way. There is little I wouldn't give to pick up the phone and call her, to hear her say my name, to get to know her as a person and not just a mother, to hand deliver a Mother's Day card and flowers, to drink a Coke and eat sunflower seeds with her, to get our nails done, to go through the McDonald's drive through to hear her contagious laugh, to tell her she was way too hard on herself, to tell her how beautiful she was, to thank her for coming to every soccer game and that she was right about piano. I absolutely wish I'd stuck with it. To tell her thank you for teaching me compassion, gratitude, and humor, for showing me how to love and to thank her for allowing her children to live the last few years of her life as kids without worry and to tell her we could have handled the news and would give anything to have been there to support her the way she always supported us. I would tell her how much I see her infectious smile in Heather, her strength in Mandy, her compassion in me, and her kind eyes in Matt, and to tell her that unimaginably, through her death, our family learned to love deeper and cherish one another in a way we took for granted before losing her. I miss my mom like hell. The pain is often more than I can bear, and what I wouldn't give to know her now. Fourteen years ago today, my heart was irreparably broken, but in honor of who she was, I choose to be grateful for the time I had, the life she gave me, and I find ways to be grateful for the lessons learned in losing her far too soon. You, Sharon Vaglin, are as good as they get. I love you. As a fellow motherless daughter, 
I cry every time I hear the tribute that Jill wrote in honor of her mom. It hits a tender spot in my heart where great pain and love coexist. Life is full of circumstances that are dealt to us. Things that given the choice, we certainly wouldn't choose, but life decides to present us with the challenge anyway. I think real character and personality show up when we take those circumstances and choose to do something positive with it. Jill's an inspiration to me. She took a family tragedy with the loss of her mom and watching her brother overcome drug addiction and jail time and decided to make a difference. She decided to take off the blinders and really see the world for what it is, flaws and all. She makes me want to go out into this world and do more. I hope she inspired you too. Jill's working on creating a website for SCORE. Do check her out on Instagram at strong underscore underscore LA. When we asked Jill how we can support her, she gave us this message. Manifest Works is my friend Dan Seaver's company that helps formerly incarcerated folks and aged out foster youth to get jobs in the TV film industry. Dan is who started and ran the program before me. Dan is doing incredible work. Please visit manifestworks.org or coalitionforengageeducation.org. That's at www.c-youth.org, which is the organization I use to run my program through. Let's show them support. This episode was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley and Karen Castro. We want to thank our contributors, Hunter Lewis and Robert Stanley for theme music, Danny Burns for transition music, Justice Stanley for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for web design, Caprice Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsors, Solid Lotion Bars, and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can find us at www.podsavetherestofus.com as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus. You can also find us on Twitter at savetherestofus. We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.